It is time. Uh, we've already prayed, for those of you online. Uh, we prayed in here. <clears throat> so last week I, I did an introduction to the book of Acts and talked about chapter 1 and talked a little bit about chapter 2 uh, with, the, uh, with the festival of Pentecost. And I explained... Uh, the Jewish festival of Pentecost, it was, it's, it's a Jewish festival, and it is on the day, of course, we know the story, and I'll read it, but we know the story of uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the apostles, and the very dramatic speaking in tongues phenomenon, and, uh, but I just started that, I just touched on that, uh, the flames of fire, tongues of fire on the head, and the wind, and, and so forth, and, and talked about some Christian meaning to the festival of Pentecost. So that was, that was last time. This time, this week, today, uh, I am going to dive deeper in chapter 2. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit, uh, just in general, uh, the Christian uh, understanding of the Holy Spirit or doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But we will also spend time talking about the phenomenon in uh, Acts chapter 2 of speaking in tongues, and I'll allude to how that uh, in, emerges again in the epo- uh, epistle of St. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14, where speaking in tongues is also mentioned and taught. As far as I know, I, I didn't actually check, but I, I'm pretty sure I'm right, that 1 Corinthians is the only place in the New Testament other than Acts 2, or Acts, where speaking in tongues is mentioned. I don't think it appears, in, well, I'm almost certain, it doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. Uh, but, uh, so, but anyway, we'll dive deep on that, because if you know, I mean, there, obviously I, I think you do know that there are many Christians who think that that is a very important part, still today, of the Christian life. Uh, the speaking in tongues or various other charismata or gifts of the Spirit. So I'll try to, I'll try to explain some of that. We'll do a few other things in chapter 2, but my other main topic I want to do in 2 is, uh, is the concept or the phrase, baptism in the name of Jesus. All right, we'll see that several times in the book of Acts. Well, we see speaking in tongues comes up several times uh, throughout as well. But what does it mean? Why does it say in Acts chapter 2, uh, you must repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus? Okay, is that, that seems a little different than what Jesus himself said in Matthew 28, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And some people do make a distinction there and, and do make a point of it. So I feel, like, uh, I feel like I should dwell on that too. All right. Okay, so let's, uh, you know, I, I actually want to read some of it. I'm going to read Acts 2 uh, and then stop periodically and make commentary. So if you have it, if you have a Bible... Uh, please, please open to Acts chapter 2, or an app, if you've got it on an app. Acts chapter 2. Okay. <clears throat> when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each, of the, each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem uh, uh, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of m- the multitude came together and they were bewildered 
because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, uh, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Okay, let's stop there. And uh, so uh, the, uh, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. I had a student one time in a, in a basic class on theology um, write a paper in which she was talking about the Holy Spirit. And she said that in her experience, uh, churches don't talk about the Holy Spirit very much. Now, we know that some churches talk about the Holy Spirit quite a lot. But in her experience, she felt like this was sort of a forgotten topic. And uh, so she said in her paper, you know, it'd really be good if we, if we did, if we, if we talked more about the Holy Spirit. So and I, I, it was a good paper. I think she probably got an A. And, and, uh, and, but, you know, I tried to write comments. And one thing I noted for her is that uh, in, in the church I go to, in my church, Lutheran church, we use a liturgical calendar. We use the, uh, um, a very traditional selection of readings, which, uh, which uh, each Sunday has a different one assigned to it. And so every year on Pentecost Sunday, we do read Acts chapter 2 and, uh, and may well have a sermon on the Holy Spirit, uh, including hymns. The hymns of the day are, are very full of Holy Spirit stuff. And I said that, uh, so you know, that means that at least once a year, uh, at least one Sunday out of the year, we will hear and discuss the Holy Spirit, which is, uh, means that it's you know, at least is ne- not going to be totally neglected. And w- of course, we hear about the Holy Spirit more than just once. But that is a value, in my opinion, pastorally, uh, to having a selection of readings, not that we should be slaves to it, but that, uh, but that it can uh, keep us, us pastors in particular, from uh, uh, dwelling on our favorite topics all the time. You know, it kind of makes us <coughs> preach on the whole counsel of God. Um, it, 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 it's a discipline. But anyway, so, so I thought that was interesting that she felt that the Holy Spirit is a neglected topic. Um, when, uh, when we do celebrate Pentecost according to the liturgical calendar, the two readings, there's three readings, but the Old Testament reading, is traditionally from Genesis 11, and I'll talk about that. And then the New, uh, well, there's gospel reading, but then the New Testament reading is always Acts 2, where we read through uh, and, and um, hear about this phenomenon, which included speaking in tongues. So, and, and I'll just share another personal experience. That was one, I'll share a second personal experience of mine. In 2009, uh, I went on a teaching mission trip to Siberia, and I was with a group, and we traveled uh, uh, east to west. Actually, we went all the way around the world to get home. But uh, anyway, uh, but, we, but we had stops throughout uh, our trip on the train across Siberia. 
um, for a month or however long I was doing that. And the Lutheran, it was with the Lutheran church there. And the Lutheran churches uh, s set up these lay seminars on theology that they do every summer. They just uh, get speakers, not necessarily only from the U.S., <clears throat> but they get speakers to come in, and then their summer they just have these theology seminars on various topics. My topic in 2009, my topic was Christian ethics. But I was with another pastor who had another topic, and so we did this. And each place you'd be there for maybe three or four days, and then you'd go to another. So I got experienced in working, teaching with a translator. And if you've ever done that, if you've ever done any public speaking where there's a translator, you say a few words or a sentence or two, and then you stop so the translator can, can say it. Now I know like in the United Nations, they have people in booths who are able to more or less translate as you're speaking. But that wasn't, that wasn't what happened with us. So, uh, okay, but in one place, in one of the locales, uh, there was a sizable number of the lay people present who were, who were deaf. And, and their pastor uh, n communicates to them a sign. So, but he didn't know English. So what I would do <laughs> is I would teach, you know, only a sentence or two. You can't say a whole lot, right? A sentence or two, stop. Then the man next to me would translate that into Russian, stop. And then the man next to him <laughs> would translate it, the Russian, into sign language. And then it would come back to me. So it might be 30 seconds in between every other sentence. And as a teacher, this is actually pretty, pretty difficult because my mind is moving, right? And, and I'm going to lose my thought. And, and, uh, but it's a discipline. You train yourself to do that. So it's kind of cool that in Acts chapter 2, they didn't need translators. This phenomenon made it possible for the apostles to preach about Jesus, uh, the cross and resurrection of Jesus, and that he is the Lord. Uh, to, to these would have mostly been, well, these were Jews and proselytes. Uh, a proselyte is a, is a convert or someone in, on, pa on the path to conversion. So in, uh, in the first century, there were, there were Gentiles who were proselytes. They, they wanted to convert to Judaism, or they would at least partially convert and uh, remain in the status of God-fearers, uh, sometimes uh, the Jewish rite of circumcision was a um, deterrent <laughs> to, uh, to, to conversion. So you had, it says, proselytes and, and Jews who were, who were there when they heard the apostles. But even the proselytes would know something about the Jewish faith, the Jewish God, and, uh, and, the, and the prophecies, the scriptures that, that spoke of the coming one. So, um, uh, and, you know, uh, I'm going to just go over quickly again the list of, of names, of the places. <clears throat> uh, verse, verse 9 and 10 and 11. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, by my count, that's, that, that's more than 12 places. That's, I counted 13 places. So if there's 12 apostles, 
uh, they may have been speaking, uh, you know, in Arabic one time and then Latin in another, the same, same guy. Or it could mean, I suppose, that, that others of uh, the apostolic uh, community or band uh, were, were included in that. Um, I, you know, if, if you kind of look these up on a map, which I encourage you maybe at some point to do, just out of curiosity and for information, uh, you'll see that, uh, like, Mesopotamia, for instance, would, is east. And Egypt is south. Uh, Rome is, is west. And uh, I, I don't know, I forget. One of, the, one of those north. So uh, indicating that the gospel now is going everywhere, right, in every direction. And this is a fulfillment of prophecy, okay? There, there are numerous places in the Old Testament, several places in the Old Testament, which says that Israel will be a light to the nations, or a light to the Gentiles, however you translate it. Uh, the word uh, uh, nation is sometimes just also rendered Gentile. The, uh, so we have that in Isaiah, but we also have it in Genesis already. And the promise given to Abraham, which would be thousands of years before the birth of Christ, and the promise given to Abraham, uh, his seed would be a blessing to all people. And so Pentecost is a, a, a dramatic fulfillment of that. There would have been other times. See, there were proselytes. There were other uh, occasions for the nations to come to the Jewish faith. With, uh, with um, the, the various captivities that uh, occurred uh, in Israel, uh, the Jews were spread all over. They didn't live in the ancient world, the first century. They weren't all living in what we, what we would call the, the nation of Israel. Um, they, were, they were all of the world. There, were, uh, a, there was a large community of Jews at the time of Jesus living in Alexandria, Egypt. A uh, large community. There were Jews, obviously, in, in, uh, in Babylon and, and in Persia, oh, but all over, even in Rome. In Rome, there was a, a, a significant number of Jews living there as well. So by the time of Christ, the Jewish people are dispersed already in this usually referred to as the diaspora, which is just the, a word for dispersion, or spread out. So there were converts from all these places. There were people that knew of the Jews and knew they were not pagans. And what would attract a convert to Judaism? What would attract a, uh, uh, a pagan in any particular place you might mention uh, to, to Judaism? Well, uh, a couple of things. One is their monotheism. Uh, philosophically, many people in the ancient world thought that monotheism was a superior way of viewing God than polytheism. In polytheism, there's many gods. They're always disputing with one another and mistreating one another, and you know, the various gods are all assigned to different things. And it can be very confusing, a pantheon. And if you have many gods, who do you pray to? Uh, you know, you maybe pray to your local god or your family deity, um, your ancestors perhaps. But uh, what, if you, what if you miss one, or one of the, miss, like, the, the really important one? That's why in Athens, Greece, they had a monument to the unknown god uh, to try to be the catch-all, right? We're, we're praying to these gods, but in case there's someone out there, we don't want to offend. Uh, so we will, you know, the, the all-god monument. And uh, so... Uh, philosophically, a lot of ancient peoples thought that monotheism was attractive, that there is one universal God, supreme above. Now, uh, 
they might do this in one of two ways. They might believe that um, there's, there's one main god, and then there's a lot of semi-demi-gods. But the Jews, of course, as you know, didn't, didn't go that path. They believe there's only one god. And everyone else, everything else, is, is a false god, maybe even a demon. Okay? So, uh, so, so all allegiance, all loyalty, uh, is to, is to the, the father of, our, of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, one God, so, so a lot of people in various parts of the world were attracted to that monotheism. They found it uh, philosophically satisfying, and so they might be drawn to Judaism. <clears throat> because in the ancient world, there weren't a lot of monotheistic options. So that was kind of cool. People liked that. The other thing that was attractive to many ancient people to Judaism is that it was very old. It had a very ancient heritage. Uh, Abraham, right? Uh, their nation was old, their temple was old, and in the ancient world, especially in Rome, old was good. Uh, in the modern times, we tend to go the opposite of that, and we think newer is better, right? The new thing, uh, newer is truer, but not in the old, old days, right? Uh, something that has an ancient, in fact, that is why the Romans did not force the Israelites or the Jews to convert. They usually made everybody uh, in the empire maybe uh, sacrifice to the emperor, but the Jews were exempt, partly because the Romans respected their antiquity and gave them that exemption. And the early Christians, as long as the first Christians could be identified as a sect of Judaism, they were protected. And, uh, but once, and this happened pretty early, uh, once the Christian movement was not very Jewish in its makeup, then the Romans said, well, now you're a new religion, and we don't like that, so we're going we're gonna to persecute you. So that's a little bit of the, the context. So there were uh, proselytes, people from all these nations. And, in the, and, and remember, in the ancient world, they weren't like us in, in respect to languages. Maybe some of you are bilingual, uh, but many Americans aren't. <laughs> many Americans are not. My wife, Julie, and I uh, like to watch on TV uh, crime dramas, detective stories. And we, we particularly like uh, those that are uh, not American. We watch a lot of British shows, and, and uh, lately we've been venturing to other, other national show, uh, other places. And the show we're watching now happens to be Norwegian. It's from Norway. And, uh, but in the story, it, I mean, the, it's not just set in Norway. It's a Norwegian show. It's produced there. And, uh, but in the, in the story, there are, in Norway, there are Russians. And so uh, when they speak to each other, they speak in English. Because English has become, in the modern world, the, the international language. And this is probably mostly because of our cultural hegemony. Everybody watches American TV. And there are other reasons, too. But, but uh, the diplomatic language, so people that live in Europe, very many of them learn some English, learn to speak English, read it. But we in America uh, often don't. <laughs> I wish we did. I think it'd be good if we did. But we, but we often only know our own language. Unless you're an immigrant, then you might have uh, an, another language under your belt. But in the ancient times, in the first century, in, in, the, uh, in, in Palestine, in Jerusalem, Almost everybody would have had a couple of languages at the minimum. If you, were, if you lived in Jerusalem, 
you, you, you most likely spoke Aramaic, which is a, a dialect of Hebrew. So it's mostly that's what you spoke in your home. What Jesus spoke was Aramaic. Um, that's, what, that's what they spoke. But they could also, if you lived in Jerusalem, you could almost, if you were, if you were very devout, you, you also could, you knew Hebrew. You could read it, maybe speak it too. But then there's a third one that, that most people, anywhere you are in the Mediterranean world, in the Roman world, okay, in the Roman world, everybody pretty much knew Greek. That was the lingua franca. That was the language of commerce and of culture. So if you wanted to communicate in the Roman Empire at the time of Christ, if you wanted to communicate with someone from another tribe or nation, uh, you could be certain that they would, you could understand each other if you start speaking Koine Greek. And how did that happen? How, it's the Roman Empire. Why aren't they all speaking Latin? Anybody know? Yes, I figured you'd know. Because <laughs> you study the Bible, right? You teach the Bible. Um, Alexander the Great, uh, 400 years before Christ, Alexander, who's Greek, had conquered many of the lands that were later Roman. And wherever Alexander went, he imposed Greek culture. He felt that Hellenism or, or Greek culture was superior to everybody else's, so he imposed uh, Greek temples, Greek thoughts, Greek literature, so everybody learned Greek. The Romans didn't necessarily do that, but, um, but so the Romans also spoke Greek. If you lived in Rome, you might speak Latin, but anyway. So what I'm trying to tell you is that all these people that are in Jerusalem, and, and there's a big number of people there, because it was just after Passover. And Passover is one of those Jewish festivals where every Jew is obligated to go to Jerusalem perhaps like once in their life, they, they, at least. They have to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And in fact, Pentecost was a, uh, um, a travel festival too, people went. So the population in Jerusalem had doubled or tripled uh, during these holy days. And, and with a lot of, they're Jews, and, but a lot of people that are not from, from Judea. Um, so that's the significance. This, and of course, the apostles, the, the apostles could have just preached in Greek. <clears throat> in fact, they wrote the New Testament in Greek. They didn't speak it but, as a, in their homes, but they wrote the New Testament in Greek because they wanted it to be universally read. And uh, so they could have preached in Greek, I suppose, in Acts 2, and still had much the same effect, where everybody would more or less hear them and understand. So I don't think that the, the only thing the speaking in tongues means is that other people could hear and understand. Yes, that was a tremendous benefit, and of course it's, it's preferable always uh, to hear the Word of God spoken in your own tongue, because you're most comfortable with it, you understand it the best, it uh, has a place in your heart to hear that in your own language. Is, uh, so, there, so that is a reason, but if it was strictly to communicate, they could have gotten by without a miracle and, and, and preached in Greek. So I suggest to you that it wasn't just to communicate, although that's super, super important part of it, but that it also signifies the bringing in, the gathering of all nationalities, of all peoples. Yes, they're still mostly Jews, but there were proselytes too, and they would go back to their various places because uh, 3,000 were, were baptized that very day. So they'd go back, 
and, uh, and presumably take the gospel home. So tremendous evangelistic missionary event, Acts chapter 2. But it's, I, I suggest to you that it, it means more than that. It also means uh, that God is reversing the curse from Genesis 11. So I said on Pentecost Sunday, we read Genesis 11 and Acts 2 because they go together. Genesis chapter 11 is the uh, Tower of Babel story, which you may have learned uh, in Sunday school or, you know, you're, you read it. And the Tower of Babel, and I know I mentioned it last week, but I'll, I'll talk about it again now. The Tower of Babel uh, tells of a time, a very, very um, primordial time, when all the peoples of the world are, uh, seem to be speaking the same language. And they propose to themselves that they will build a tower to the heavens. And, uh, and, and maybe they're starting to do that. Uh, this tremendous feat of engineering skill. See, that's what it was. Um, you know, it's not that they needed a ladder to get to heaven in a literal, literal way. We're going to climb up there uh, to be closer to God. But it was a feat, a feat of magnificence, of, of uh, boasting, I suppose, of their, of their technical or technological skill and advancement. I mean, even now, uh, you know, some, you know the, the tallest skyscrapers in the world, only, only in the 20th century have we been able to do much with that, very impressive. Uh, so it, it takes a, a really a, a fantastic engineering ability to, to, to construct something anywhere near that kind of magnitude. Now God sees this and, and, and he, he chooses to, to, to curse it. Uh, he, he's offended by this. Is it because he doesn't like uh, tall architecture? No. It's because of the mindset of their hearts that there is this reliance, this, this uh, f faith, if you will, in, in science and technology, right? So there's a very modern aspect to that where the people, you don't need God. If I can build a tower to heaven, why do I need God, okay? I can do almost anything. And that's, that's, what, that's what God says. Uh, I must confuse their languages because they will think that they can do anything they want. And, and so it's a curse in which he confuses their language so that they can no longer cooperate and work together in order to, to uh, achieve this, this, this uh, great act which God found offensive. And there's a lesson there for us, right? That technologies, uh, you know, knowledge and technology is not bad. It's not evil. Of course, great good comes from science and technology, but it is the mindset of the heart, or the heart, uh, when one uh, sees that as we don't need God, because we can, we can solve our problems. And so God will confuse that. that. The Greeks had a word for that, hubris. Hubris means not just arrogance or pride. It's usually translated pride. But hubris in the Greek context specifically means uh, pride against the gods. If you have hubris, you are, you are defiant of the gods. And that's why all these Greek tragedies have the gods or fate setting them straight. And that's what happens in Genesis 11. God 
God confuses it so they cannot accomplish this. And what's going on in Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, is a, is a reversal of that, an undoing of the curse to show that, uh, that now we are one. What made, you know, what, where, where God imposed this to cause division in the world, now he's acting to bring in, to gather in the nations into one body in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, in one family. Where God's going to break the wall of division between Jews and Gentiles. So I, you know, th that, is an, that is, I think, an additional very important way to see, uh, see what's happening in, in uh, the, the, the speaking in tongues. I suppose I'll pause. Um, anybody? I'm going to talk next about the, the actual speaking in tongues phenomenon itself and different interpretations of that. But so far, anybody want to? Uh, Did the uh, did the apostles who were speaking in tongues did they know the the tongues they were speaking? I, I mean, it's not clear to me. Were they like was Peter speaking the Phrygian and he happened to know Phrygian and and you know maybe James knew the the Latin and he spoke the Latin or something like that? Is that the way it worked or? Well, it says that the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began to speak in tongues. Um, uh, so it suggests that it's miraculous. It, it's it, yeah. I, I, I could also, I, I mean, you, another way you could read that is to say the words that they spoke, like, uh, you know, what he preached was what was given utterance. You, mm. you know, in other words, they, they all preached the mighty works of God, and the, what they preached was, is, was is what the what Spirit gave them. what was the result them. of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and, and there's also this, it, it seems, parts of it, it seems like it's, it's not so much that the speakers spoke, but the hearers heard in their language. Well, so we'll, I, we'll get I, it's, to that. It's all unclear to me what what the miracle was, or you know exactly what happened there. Yeah, we'll we will get to. Uh, I will talk about the. Is it a miracle of speaking, or is it a miracle of hearing, or both, or both? Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah, neither. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I don't have on my fingertips a, a a biblical quote. Maybe someone can help me here uh, that says that this was, these were languages that they never learned. Although that is the traditional understanding, that is the traditional interpretation. And the fact that later on, and I will try to compare this and contrast it with 1 Corinthians, but later on when Paul talks about speaking in tongues, he puts an emphasis on translators, uh, that, the, that there must be a translator, suggesting that he himself doesn't know, uh, you know what he's saying. <laughs> there needs to be a translation. He can't just do that himself. I mean, there might be, you know, you know, in my in my foggy memory, uh, there might be um, an illusion that says that these were languages they'd never learned. It's not coming to my head. Someone can help me with that if you if you if you can. But uh, but that is the traditional understanding: is that they were speaking in languages that they didn't know, because it was unlikely that men of Jerusalem would know thirteen different languages. It was unlikely. It was uh, really kind of impossible. They were not particularly educated. Now, Paul, later, may have known a few things because he was highly educated and he was a Roman citizen. But in Jerusalem in the first century, uh, Jerusalemites really didn't learn 
uh, Phrygian. Uh, Phrygian Jews would come, and so maybe there were some family members or something that could speak it. But, uh, but that, uh, that's a bit of a leap that to, to think that they knew 13 different languages, these, these fishermen. Well, that's, so, so I, th that's what I meant when I said before that I counted 13 languages. And if there's 11, right, so, so Judas is gone, although it's 12 because by now they've already chosen Matthias, the replacement for Judas. So there's 12 apostles, and, uh, but there's 13 languages. So it could be that others in the apostolic band or apostol in a circle, uh, but who were not the 12, may have been included in this. I don't know. Or it could be that Peter spoke two or three languages uh, to, to different people. Yeah. Yes? You may bring this up later on, but many people, I've known a number of people who say they have a prayer language. Okay, sure. They don't understand it, yeah. and nobody's hearing them, but yeah. they believe it. Yeah, yeah. So let's do that. Let's talk about what is going on in Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Because this is a, a subject that Christians are not united on. I mean, worldwide, Christians are not united on. Uh, what, what is this? What's going on? Is it some kind of a private prayer language that's not a human language? Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of, you know, angels, right? Men are angels. So is there an angelic language that we, that we could be speaking. So that is something for sure that, that, that people will use to, uh, will how some people will go. And there is a verse, <clears throat> I don't have it on top of my tip of my tongue, but there is a verse in 1 Corinthians, probably 12 or 14, where Paul talks about if there's no trans, so the emphasis in 1 Corinthians is that, if, is that there will be speaking in tongues in the assembly. Not everyone will do this. And for Paul, when it occurs, there must be translation. Okay. Well, and just another linguistic thing. Uh, your, your English Bibles probably say tongues, speaking in tongues, and interpretation. But the word for tongue, glossa, is the word for language. So, I mean, you could just as easily translate that as they were speaking in languages. Which still doesn't prove it's uh, not a prayer language, but the... the the, uh, the normal meaning, if I say language, the normal meaning, uh, you're usually going to think of a spoken language with things like grammar and syntax. And, and, uh, so it could be that they were speaking in languages. And the word that's translated interpretation could just as easily be translated as translation. So they were speaking in languages and there were translators. And if you, if you put it into English with that, it seems less miraculous. I mean, it's miraculous, but it seems less like there's something that's not a human language going on. Because that's the heart of the disagreement. That in Acts 2, it is obvious that the apostles are speaking human languages because it, it does say we're hearing them in our own language. And this goes back to the question, is it a miracle of hearing or of speaking or both? I would either side with uh, the, it's a miracle of speaking or both. It, it's not a miracle of hearing because it says that the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in other languages. So they spoke in other languages. But they, others say, we hear them in our own language. But if I'm speaking to you in Greek and your native language is Greek, you're hearing me in Greek. I don't think that it's a miracle of hearing. 
because the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in other languages. So that's Acts 2. They're clearly speaking Phrygian and Latin and Arabic. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, that is not apparent. It is something that's going on, at least to some, it is something that's going on in an in a assembly, not in a public place where there's a ton of crowd, crowds of people. It's the Christian church where people are speaking in tongues. Now I'm going to give you a, a way to think about that, but that is how a lot of people see that, that it is, a, it is not a human language. People are uh, speaking in tongues in the church, 1 Corinthians 12, and it's not something, it's not Arabic. It's, it's, it's a heavenly language or something. Or gibberish, <laughs> and uh, which you know, and so uh, so there's a translation necessary so it can be communicated and edify the group. If it doesn't edify the group, Paul says, don't do it. Okay, but if you do do it, he says, uh, do it uh, uh, at home, <laughs> by yourself, between you and God. Now that could be me, that could mean it's not a human language. God doesn't need me to speak in Arabic. I don't know. I mean, that is, someone will point to that and say, see, that's evidence that in, in Corinth, that, you know, it's not the same thing, exclusively the same thing as Acts 2. I'm going to push back against that in a moment um, and suggest that it is the same thing that's going on in Acts chapter 2. But, uh, but let's get that question first. Um, there was a time in our life when a few people were praying over us during an event, and uh, I assume it was a prayer tongue or a speaking in tongues. Yeah. And one of the people said, if you have the Holy Spirit, you know it because you can speak in tongues. And it sounded like gibberish to me. And, right, right. And right. we've been taught faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. And if you can't hear the word of God, I don't see how there's any application for it. Although I wouldn't preclude the fact that it could happen. So there are no Christians who don't have the Holy Spirit. Okay? I mean, that, I'm speaking from my... There are no Christians well. who don't have the Holy Spirit. However, one could say that that doesn't mean that there can't be some unique outpouring that only happens to some. Okay? But if someone does say that, if someone says, well, and, and sometimes they do, uh, sometimes Pentecostal... Uh, uh, Christians will say that, that tongue speaking is, is necessary. Now, I don't think that's the majority viewpoint amongst Pentecostals today, but I have heard it. And, uh, um, but they, even if they don't think it's necessary for salvation, they do think it is a, uh, something we should expect in the life of the church today. And if it doesn't happen at all, then there's something probably wrong, and it should happen. Okay? So, um, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, Paul, Paul states that some people speak in tongues, not everybody. All right? So if he's speaking to the saints in Corinth and says that some of you are speaking in tongues, then, then you know, they're saints. So the, you know, not all Christ, Christians spoke in tongues in Corinth. So I would, I would push back against that for sure. You have the Holy Spirit. You, if you can confess that Jesus is Lord more than just sort of, you know, mouthing the words... That was a, that was, you can only do that by the Holy Spirit. You don't have the power to uh, believe in Jesus Christ as, as your Lord without the Holy Spirit working in your heart. Conversion. So, so sometimes Christians will say uh, that, uh, that you, you're converted. 
And then you seek a second experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes, uh, like, like, like John Wesley, you know, is a, well, you, you, you have the conversion. He didn't really, I don't think, talk about tongue speaking. But he said you have to have another experience, which is sanctification, total sanctification. So there are some, some Christian groups that say there's three things. Okay, you know, you're converted. You have this baptism in tongues, which is rep, uh, made evident by signs. And then, and then a, a, a third thing where you're totally converted. So let, let me kind of try to make the case. And, and we don't have to exhaust this topic today. Okay, looking at the clock. Um, although I would like to do other things in Acts, but this is a big one. All right, this is a big one. Um, I, uh, you know, so it, you can point to verses and defend uh, that this is that what's going on in Corinth might be something different than what's going on in Acts. But, uh, uh, but, but I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend that that's that that's not the, probably the case. I, I I think it's probably that what was going on in Corinth was still what was going on in Acts too. And, and one of my reasons for thinking that is because. Uh, it's the same phrase, okay, uh, speaking in tongues. And it's the same phrase used in Acts as used in Paul. Since Luke was a close associate of Paul and a co-worker and traveled with him and accompanied him on his church planting ministry, it seems unlikely that they would use the same phrase with completely different meanings. They were, they were companions. They knew each other's. Undoubtedly, Luke heard Paul preach dozens and dozens of times. So that he would mean something very, very different by the same phrase was, I think, unlikely. You know, it, it's not a conclusive argument, but uh, you know, it might be uh, you know, a, a better explanation than to think that it's, it's something completely different. So, uh, so, so that's one of, my, uh, one of my suggestions to you. The other thing is that the emphasis is on communication. Now, it's edifying, right? I mean, it's edifying to the person doing it. But the, but the emphasis in Corinth still seems to be, with the necess necessity of an interpreter, that, that, that communication for the edification of the whole, the point of it is not individual edification I, in, in Corinthians. It's, it's for the whole. So, so, so maybe the church in Corinth, uh, and this is plausible, maybe the church in Corinth is still multi-ethnic. Because Corinth was. Corinth was a very cosmopolitan. It was a port. It had many, many people from around the world. So it's, it's almost certain that Christians from other nations would be going into the church in Corinth, or people with other languages would be joining the church. So, so it could easily be that Paul is saying, in the assembly, it's good if someone can, can preach the gospel in other languages, as long as there's an interpretation so that everyone can understand. That seems to be... Uh, uh, the, the, the strong emphasis uh, for, uh, in, uh, in Paul and Corinth. Now, my other, th my other argument, another argument, is, is a historical one. There are, there, there are no church fathers, with the exception of maybe one, okay? There are no early, even the earliest Christian writers outside the New Testament that we have into the 20th century, into the 1st century and 2nd century, the earliest Christian writers we have interpret 1 Corinthians as, uh, as the same thing as Acts 2, speaking in human language. Again, that doesn't, that's not a conclusive argument, but I think it is supportive of my point. Even into the Reformation, it appears that throughout most of church history, uh, until the 20th century, no one ever 
talks about there being a, um, an ecstat what I would call ecstatic speech, uh, glossolalia, the, the speaking that's only for you and God, angelic speaking, heavenly prayer language, seems to be entirely unknown uh, for most, uh, until the 20th century. What we know today as Pentecostalism, uh, th there is no evidence that this existed until early, 19, early 20th century. And where it seems to have broken out is uh, Topeka, Kansas. Uh, yep, Topeka, Kansas. There was, a, there was a, 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 an evangelical Christian who had a little Bible college that he ran in Topeka, Kansas, uh, Charles Parham. And, uh, and he taught that this was, well, okay, he taught that speaking in tongues should occur. And, and in his, his small group of students, uh, it happened. Someone began speaking in, in, in tongues, and they identified it as speaking in tongues. But even then, he thought it was Chinese. I, 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 don't, I have no way. Of, um, and, and they sent this person to China. Okay. So even then, <laughs> e even then, okay, so he's saying speaking in tongues should occur in the modern church. And then when it does, they all assume it's a human language. Okay. And then, okay, then it really gets going, uh, the Pentecostal movement in Los Angeles. You guys know this? Los Angeles is kind of the, the birthing place of, uh, of modern Pentecostalism. Uh, uh, a revival took place on Azusa Street from 1906 to 1915. It's a long revival. And there's a lot to say about it, which, which is not necessary for this class. But there we start to see more account, many accounts of people doing the kinds of things, not just speaking in tongues, but uh, falling over and, uh, and dancing and uh, uh, purportedly other miracles that we associate now with. So, you know, you re you just, it just seems striking to me that it doesn't seem to exist, even in the early church. And when the early church fathers do speak of it, they say it has ceased with the death of the apostles. Now, again, they might be wrong, but, but you'd think there'd be some evidence. And there really isn't, except one, one, one guy <laughs> who was considered a heretic. Not necessarily for that reason. Okay. So that's, uh, that's a number of the things I wanted to say about that. Um, yeah. So I, I would suggest to you that what's going on in Acts 2 is most probably the same thing that's going on in Corinth. Um, and that when Paul says things like speaking in tongues of men and angels, that is poetic. I, I don't know that that's proof that there is such a thing as angel, angel speech that we're, that we're speaking here. I mean, the angels can talk, so they might be saying something. Okay, go ahead. Is it on? Okay. Well, what is the benefit of having that kind of prayer language, why can't we just use our own language? Well, um, I mean, you know, I, what, will, what people will say to you, uh, what, what, what our Pentecostal friends and, and my family members uh, who, who are Pentecostal, is that it is very edifying that you receive, a, you experience when you do this, you experience um, an intimacy of the presence of God that is not everyday experience. That in doing this, you know, a critic could look at that and say, "Well, you're you're in a you're in a um, you're in an altered state of consciousness. You, you've 
you've whipped yourself into kind of a, a trance-like state. Um, what's, the, what's the word I'm trying to find? Um, an ecstasy, right? Um, and there have been ecstatic experiences through all church history, not associated with tongue speaking, but mystics. Mystics were always fainting and having these experiences of God that were non-rational. Um, but that's how, that's how modern Pentecostal, one, one thing they'll say is that it is, and then if there is an interpretation, and I have been in worship services where they do that. Someone will speak in tongues, but it's clearly not a human language that I've ever heard. Um, and it even doesn't seem to have any, I mean, it's like the same phrase over and over. And then, so one, one, uh, one, one time I was at a, a, a thing where, uh, where this occurred. And, uh, and the preacher, uh, I mean, uh, to his credit, the preacher said, okay, everyone else be quiet. And so this, this person spoke. And then she stopped. And then he said, okay, we're going to wait for an interpretation. I don't know how long it took, but eventually someone else stood up and gave an interpretation, which is, you could see how, because Paul says, this, Paul calls interpretation of tongues a gift. So, so that itself could be a supernatural thing. And from the interpretation, it's like you're getting a message from God, right? So that can be edifying to the whole. So that is, but in a lot of times, Pentecostal settings, the, the, you know, you have, you have numerous people speaking in tongues at the same time, and interpretations may be secondary. But, but that, is, that is the, to answer your question, they'll say there's an experience of closeness to God that is beyond natural. And that it strengthens you, right? Um, clearly, what happened in Acts 2 strengthened the apostles, okay? Just days before, uh, they were hiding. And it, you know, it says that on, on the day of Easter, they were hiding behind a locked door for fear, fear of the Jews, you know, but they were fearful. So they would go from that, and then from Acts 2 on, which is only 50 days later, so a month and a half, that from that on, they're like lions, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're you know, they, they face, even here, they face time and again throughout Acts, the apostles face opposition. And the possibility of, of suffering. And they seem to be pretty invincible. You know? And so they do, they do get arrested. They do get beaten. And uh, you know, the, the episode where they, they, they're told not to preach about Jesus Christ. And they, and they well, we're, you know, we're still going to. And so they get beaten and released. And, and the apostles say, uh, we count it an honor that we were worthy to suffer for the name. So that's, a, that's not fearful and locked locking your door. What, it does appear that there's a huge change. Okay, now, uh, we don't have to explain that as some kind of a charismatic or some kind of a Pentecostal thing. Oh, but, uh, I mean, something happened in that room on Acts, in Acts 2 on Pentecost that was different than they'd ever had. It is a type of presence of the Holy Spirit that, uh, that is... is um, is something different, and that not all all had, but it may well have passed away with the death of the apostles or the death of the apostolic era. Historically, that's what seems to have happened that it that it did pass away, um, because it probably served a, a missionary purpose. Okay, so the church is now 
not in, you know, it, it, is, it is now going to be a worldwide global faith, which is a, a major theme here. That this is for all people, the reversal of Babel, the promise to Abraham specifically that all nations will be blessed through his seed. Because this is the spirit of Jesus. It's not just another thing. It's the spirit of Jesus, whom he uh, and, and the Father have sent. I'm just going to say, do I go to 10.15 or 10.20? Okay, I've got, I've got one minute. I, I will just say a couple of words about uh, the, our, the Christian understanding of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned, uh, taught throughout the Bible, old and new. Mostly new. And the Holy Spirit is called different things. Uh, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Father. We don't think those are all different things. They're, they're, they're all names for the, for the same thing. But, uh, um, but the, the idea that the, whole, the Trinity, right? As we know, as we confess the Trinity uh, today, uh, uh, the apostles believed in the Trinity, but there was confusion in Christianity in the first few centuries about what the Holy Spirit is. Not everyone was perfectly clear on that. Some people thought of the Holy Spirit as maybe something less than the Father and the Son. And that's why you have fourth century church councils where they say, well, no. Uh, the, the testimony of Scripture is that the Holy Spirit is, uh, is, is, is equal to the Father and the Son. Then they began to use words like Trinity, but... All right. Ta yes, one more. Uh, Jesus' words uh, himself in uh, Acts 1, uh, in verse 8, it says, he's talking to the disciples then, you will receive power. Yeah when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So that is open. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's... Yeah, good observation, right. That this is... This, you know, all Christians have the Holy Spirit. But there can be understood that there's a, 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 a unique or um, particular type of manifestation of, of pouring out of the Holy Spirit that not all Christians have that the, to give the apostles power. I mean, the, you know, the... The word is dynamis, right? It's a dynamite. You know, it's, 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 it, and, and that seems to be what happened. From Acts 2 on, they are, uh, and they all did get murdered but <laughs> uh, for the faith. But. Okay, thank you for your attention. And uh, we will probably say a few more words about Acts 2, but I want to do something else too. Uh, Acts has 28 chapters. I don't have 28 weeks. So we're going to have to skip around. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.